0: Before we dive in, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you this morning in various states, some excited to be here, some not sure why they're here, some feeling joyful and some feeling burdened. Uh, Lord, would you meet us where we are this morning? Uh, God, we recognize what a privilege it is for us to be able to gather freely in your name this morning. Uh, we know that our brothers and sisters around the world often don't experience that same opportunity, and so we lift uh, the persecuted church up to you, uh, both missionaries and uh, locals and nationals. Lord, would you encourage them this morning, uh, empower them to boldly proclaim the gospel so that uh, you would continue to transform uh, people into the image of your son. And God, as we open your word together, we ask that you'd be among us, uh, teaching and encouraging, uh, and opening our eyes. Our minds and our hearts to the truth that's found in your word. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors on staff, and thanks for gathering together to worship uh, in this place. And a special welcome to those uh, who are watching at Wood County Jail via stream this morning. We're really glad you're able to join us. Well, if you were to create like a top five list of the most important Bible characters in uh, all the pages of Scripture, who do you think you'd put on that list? The first person that better have come to your mind is Jesus, right? Hopefully that's the case if you skipped over that one well, maybe reevaluate how you're uh, understanding what the whole Bible is all about. Jesus is the most important, right? But then we would include some other names, right? Maybe David is pretty important. Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. Maybe a, a disciple like you know, Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or uh, whoever, we'd include some more people, right? Well, in any list of uh, top five that we came up with, we probably would need to include a guy called Abraham, Uh, Abraham is a pretty big deal throughout the Old and the New Testament, and probably one of the top five uh, most important characters in all of the Bible. If you don't know who Abraham is, uh, let me give you a quick rundown. Abraham is a man who first shows up in the book of Genesis, and he's a guy just like anybody else who lives in the Middle East, and God, for whatever reason, his own reasons that we may Uh, not know, chose Abraham uh, as the one who would be the father of uh, the nation of Israel and the Jewish and now Christian faith. God just sort of calls him to follow him out of the blue, and Abraham, for whatever reason, in faith, uh, decides to follow him. There are some important stories about Abraham uh, that might ring a bell for you. So Abraham was involved in um, the Sodom and Gomorrah thing with his uh, nephew, Lot. He, uh, was, he famously uh, was called to take his son, Isaac, all the way up this mountaintop and Uh, He takes him up there and he gets him on, you know, the altar that was up there so that he could sacrifice him because that's what God asked him to do. And uh, right as he's about to do that, God says, no, 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 you don't need to sacrifice your son. I've provided a sacrificial lamb for you. And it's this amazing, beautiful picture of the gospel uh, in the Old Testament as Jesus would later come and be our sacrificial lamb he shows up in both genealogies in Matthew and Luke of Jesus, so Jesus traces his, lineages, his lineage back there, and then he's referenced all over in the New Testament, including in our text in Romans 4 this morning. Uh, it's supposed to rain all afternoon, I think, so I would encourage you check out Abraham later today, uh, verses, chapter 12 to 15 in Genesis, uh, or really just start in 12 and keep on reading uh, all about Abraham. He's worth getting to know. Anyway, at the very beginning, um, Abraham is led out of his homeland of Ur into the land that would become Israel, and between Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15, we see God make a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is like a promise or a commitment or an agreement, uh, and he make, God makes that promise with Abraham, and you'll, you'll hear people talk about or you'll read about the, the Abrahamic covenant covenant and it's a really big deal throughout the whole bible and it has some pretty big and far-reaching implications and it might sound overwhelming because you know it's it's jargon right the abrahamic covenant but it's really super simple so let's unlock it together the abrahamic covenant uh, is basically three things that god promised abraham in genesis he promised him offspring. So Abraham uh, was an older guy, but uh, God promised that he would have offspring. In fact, so many offspring that it would be the same as uh, the stars are in the sky. This is why if you grew up in the church, uh, you may be familiar with that little ditty, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons said, Father Abraham and I have one of them. I am one of them and so are you. Da-da-da-da. Remember that song? Well, that's why. Because God made this promise to Abraham that he would have offspring. The second promise was land. Uh, God promised to lead Abraham out of his home into the land that would become the nation of Israel. Uh, And finally, he promised him a blessing relationship. So God promised both that he would bless Abraham and walk with him for his whole life, and that through Abraham, God would bless the whole world. That's it. So those are the three promises. That's the Abrahamic covenant. If you can remember those things, offspring, land, blessing, relationship, uh, you can have the Abrahamic covenant in a nutshell. And and if you can understand that the basis of Abraham's faith in God is that he trusted when God promised him those three things, then you're in good shape. That's really good background information for us to have as we approach uh, our text this morning. So please keep that in mind, and if you want uh, later, go read Genesis 12 to 15 with this stuff in mind, and it might help you uh, understand a little more clearly what's going on. Uh, But for now, um, this is the gist of the promise that god made to abraham that we now call the abrahamic covenant cool so with that we're going to open back to romans chapter 4 verses 9 to 25 Uh, it's on page 913 in the worship center bible Um, i'm preaching from the niv if you're opening a digital version uh, it's in the U version notes you can do that or if you have your little journal uh, that's a great way to follow along and there's some more information about abraham in that little journal so if you didn't bring it today um, check that out later So, in the book of Romans, uh, Paul has been talking a ton about justification by faith rather than justification by any kind of works, right? We've heard this over and over and over for the last few weeks. We talked about it in the second half of Romans chapter 3, and then Pastor Glenn talked about it a whole bunch last week, and now it's showing up again here in our text this morning. And so, since it's been hit over and over, and for the sake of time, I'm just going to offer you three reminders from this text about justification as a summary of these first eight verses. And then we'll see four lessons in the text that Ashley read for us uh, that we can learn from a look at Abraham's faith. So, first we have three reminders. But let me just say about these three reminders, even though this is a briefer section, these are super important to understand thoroughly and correctly. Because in a nutshell, what Paul has been saying for the last chapter and a half is what was recaptured in the Protestant Reformation. That according to Scripture alone, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And if you miss that, if you don't understand that your salvation rests solely on the grace of God and the work of Christ on the cross, and you think that you somehow contribute to it, then all of this is for nothing. And you're walking out your days in futility and you're trying to earn a salvation that can't be earned. So, it's literally a life or death issue. So please hear these reminders again this morning. Reminder number one, religious works do not save you. Religious works do not save you. In verses 9 to 12, Paul engages with those who suggest that the Jewish practice of circumcision, that's something that uh, is a little awkward or uncomfortable for us to talk about, right? But uh, in Jewish conversation, it was very uh, normal. Well, he, he's engaging with those who suggest that that practice had something to do with the salvation of Abraham, The practice of circumcision is something that we would call a religious work, right? It's not an exact one-to-one, but it's sort of like saying that someone is saved by their baptism or saved by taking communion or by church attendance or by doing quiet times or whatever, and those things are all good, right? We should be baptized if we trust in Jesus, and we should take communion and be reminded of the gospel, and we should spend time with God in fellowship through his word. Those things are all good, but none of them bring about salvation. When Abraham was called by God and the nation of Israel and the Jewish faith were born, one of the things to mark the people uh, was that men were were to be circumcised. And so there were all kinds of debates all these years later about whether circumcision and consequently other religious works played a role in salvation. And verses 9 and 10 address this issue about whether Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness in light of his religious works or not. And I, Paul has quite the response, and I like to think of him replying in somewhat of a snarky tone as he uh, writes here in verses 10 through the second half of 11. So look at verse 10 with me or through the first half of 11. It says this, under what circumstances was it credited? That is, under what circumstances was Abraham's righteousness granted? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before, and he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Guys, Paul says, Abraham was called to follow God and these promises were made to him before circumcision was even a thing. Therefore, it could not possibly have had anything to do with his salvation. And the same is true for you and I. It is not by our religious works. It's not by our baptism or our communion taking or our daily quiet times or any of that that we are saved. Religious works don't save you. Not even an ounce. Reminder two. The law does not save you. In verses 13... To 15. In these verses, Paul reminds the people that the law did not save Abraham either because their logic goes something like this, right? Abraham was so obedient and he followed God so closely and he listened to him and he did all these things that God told him to do. And so, of of course, God saved him. and, And therefore, if we want God's favor and if we want to be saved, then we have to do the same thing, right? We have to uphold God's commands in order to be saved. Well, again, the law is a good thing, right? We should uphold the laws of God. In fact, Jesus summarizes the whole law and tells us that we should love our neighbors as ourselves, and that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus says the whole law is summed up in those things, and so of course we should uphold the law. The law is a good thing, and the law is powerless to save us. It had nothing to do with Abraham's salvation because, again, you guessed it, the law came way before Abraham, or way after Abraham was called to follow God, right? Abraham existed, and then 430 years later, the law came. So, question, how could the law have saved Abraham? Answer, it could not have. It couldn't have. It didn't exist, right? It could not have, and it did not have anything to do with With his salvation. In fact, we read in verses 14 and 15 that if salvation came by the law, then faith means nothing, and the promise of God is worthless, and that the whole purpose of the law was to show our need for a righteousness that would be credited to us. What Paul is saying here is this if Abraham earned his faith by the law, which he couldn't have because the law didn't exist when he was called, but let's say it did. Then the promise that God made to bless him, that threefold promise, right, to bless him and and give him offspring and land, that was totally pointless because Abraham could have just upheld the law and earned that stuff himself anyways. But that's not what happened, right? That's not what happened. The law came much later. And the purpose of the law was always to be a mercy, to expose sin and drive people to God who would grant them righteousness and salvation. So if religious works and the law can't save Abraham or us, then how does one gain the righteousness of God? Well, you'll be very familiar with this answer by now. But the third reminder is this, you are saved by grace through faith. Therefore, verse 16 says, therefore, since religious works and the law can't save a person, the promise of salvation comes by faith so that it may be grace and may be given to all Abraham's offspring, both Jews and Gentiles, meaning we get to be included in this promise. God called Abraham to himself, and it was totally unwarranted. It wasn't because of anything that Abraham had done. He granted him the promise of offspring land and this blessing relationship simply by God's good grace. Right? There was nothing special about Abraham prior to his calling, to to God calling him. He was a man who likely worshipped a moon god. That was what they worshipped in his area before Yahweh called him to himself. But then that's what our God is like, isn't it? That's what he's all about. He's about calling idolaters and rebels and wayward, hopeless people to himself for no reason that they bring to the table. It's simply by his grace that he calls people, and it brings glory to his name. Hear this. You are not saved by your works or your keeping of the law. You do not bring one measure of favor from God upon yourself by your good works. You are saved out of darkness and spiritual death solely by the grace of God And all you have to do is come to him empty-handed and confess him as Lord with the expectation that he'll save you. And he does. He does. He loves to. He loves to save people. He doesn't cringe at your brokenness or your rebellion. He just says, come, I'll rescue you. Come in your brokenness, and I'll put you back together. Come in your mess of a life, and I'll clean you up. Come in your sense of feeling like you don't have any purpose and I will give you purpose. I will satisfy the longings of your soul. I will fill you with my spirit and your life will never be the same. So that in mind, understanding that God called Abraham to himself as an act of grace and that God calls you to himself as an act of grace, what can we learn from that? Abraham's faith that would help us as we walk out our lives, striving to live out our faith really well. Well, at least four lessons come to the surface as we look at Abraham. So let's work back through verses 18 to 25. Lesson number one, Abraham believed when circumstances seemed hopeless. Look at verse 18 with me. It says, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. And so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him so shall your offspring be. Think back to that story of Abraham with me. Abraham was advanced in years, right? And this guy, this God, who he had never met appears to him out of the blue and and this god suddenly calls him out of his homeland away from his family into this land that was filled with people and he promises him the land right but but there's people there and so abraham's got to be thinking well how is this going to work because i don't know you god and you and you say you're going to give me this and and you also say that i'm going to have an heir and that they're my children and their children are going to be like the stars in the sky and, and that's going to be with my wife Sarah but she's also very old and, and then he promised that he would have a relationship with Abraham not just to bless him but the whole world through him and, and that's a lot, right? And of course it's easy for us to look back on uh, history and say, well yeah, but God would do those things and so we think, well yeah, I would, we could, we, could prompt, we could be faithful and we could place our faith and trust in God because yeah, we'd do what Abraham did but come on, right? Because if you're in your later years of life or you're thinking, you know, ahead to your later years of life and not your 50s or 60s, but your 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and some God that you've never met before appears to you and says, hey, you're going to have a kid with your wife who's also pretty old, it's going to be hard to believe, right? And if that same God says, you need to leave your homeland and follow me and I'm going to take you to this land that's full of people and I'm going to give it to you, that, that's tough, Right? But that's exactly what Abraham did. He believed God when those circumstances looked hopeless. Hopelessness plagues people today, right? Study after study shows this, although we probably don't need studies to prove to us that people are hopeless, right? We, we all feel hopeless at times, and we know people who struggle with deep hopelessness. But we see it in all kinds of studies. A Harvard study recently concluded that roughly 55% of Americans, that's more than half, Under 30 reported feeling nervous, anxious, or on edge. And 47% reported feeling down, depressed, or hopeless at least several days in the last two weeks. Studyfinds.org found that 67% of people don't think they'll see positive social change in their lifetime. Two thirds of people think that, that things are just gonna continue to tank for the rest of their life. In June of 2020, The CDC released data suggesting that 25% of adults age 18 to 24 have considered suicide. And certainly that number has only grown as we've come out of everything that happened the last few years. Those are some pretty uh, shocking numbers, right? Well, of course, the reasons for these numbers and these statistics are complex and far-reaching and not one-size-fits-all, but as Christians, we have the answer to hopelessness don't we see Abraham looked at everything in front of him and there were no earthly reasons for him to have hope he was promised a child but he and his wife were old he was promised this land but it was occupied and he he just had his family that he was called out with he had no history with this God no way to look back and say yeah well God has proven himself over and over and over so I'll trust him he he just called him Abraham could have looked at his situation in life and at what was going on in front of him after following this new God and said, man, this is hopeless. There's no way any of it's gonna happen. Forget it, I'm out. I'm going back home to what's comfortable. At least this moon God that I worship appears in the night sky once a night, right? Every day I get to see, so something's going on. But you know what? Abraham didn't do that. And you don't have to either. You don't have to either. When you feel hopeless and when your circumstances look hopeless and your situation looks bleak, you can choose to continue in faith. You can decide to keep walking with Jesus. You can ignore the circumstances of your life that are pulling you in all sorts of directions and tossing you here and there. And instead, keep your trust in the one who remains steadfast through it all. He's unchanging, he's always there, and he's always steady. Tim Keller talks about this idea like this. He says, faith is not opposed to reason, but it is sometimes opposed to feelings and appearances. Abraham looked at his body and it looked hopeless, but he didn't go on appearances. This shows us that faith is not simply an optimism about life in general, nor is it faith in oneself. It is the opposite Faith begins with a kind of death to self-trust. Faith is going on something despite our weakness, despite our feelings and perceptions. Don't place your trust in your circumstances and how your life is going and how you feel and what you're experiencing in the day-to-day. Instead, like Abraham, place your gaze on the Lord who never changes and continue to trust in his faithful promises. Lesson number two, Abraham endured in faith. Read verse 19 and the first half of verse 20 with me. It says, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith. From the time God called Abraham uh, and told him that he would be a blessing to all nations in Genesis 12 until his son was born. So from the time that he gave that promise that he would have a son until the time that he had a son in Genesis chapter 21 was 25 years. 25 years, not, you know, nine months or 10 months or two years or whatever, 25 years. That's a long time. Right, Even if people lived longer back then in the Old Testament, 25 years is 25 years. That's a long time. And so to wait on God to deliver his promise as year after year passed, as Abraham watched himself age and he watched his wife age and become more and more barren, it was a big deal. But Paul says that Abraham did not waver in his faith and instead was strengthened in it. Abraham waited on God and he continued to trust him during this time period. He endured in faith. It's so antithetical to our uh, instant gratification culture, isn't it? To endure in faith and to wait on God. And, and we take that instant gratification and we uh, whether we like it or not, we translate it into our faith. We apply it. We, we, we get a diagnosis that's not good and we say, God, take this away. And then God doesn't do that uh, by next year or two years. And we walk with this sickness or disease for year after year. We have this pain that won't go away. We have this relationship that's damaged. We have, we have things that go on in our lives and, and we ask God to take them away. And when he doesn't do it by like next Thursday, then we assume that he's withdrawn and he doesn't care. Right? We think God's not here but that's not how God works at all. Right? When we look back on Abraham and on so many other biblical characters, we see this aspect of God walking with his people through long periods of waiting, through suffering, through God's delay as they wait on his timing, through the impatience of people. And he's always got a plan, and he always comes through. And Abraham's patient faith, his enduring faith, is one that's worth emulating. Does that mean that Abraham um, was perfect in his faith as he endured? Well, of course not. Of course Abraham wasn't perfect, right? His not wavering doesn't mean that he never doubted or failed or deliberately disobeyed, right? He was as sinful as the next guy. And in fact, as time went on, he even took matters into his own hands and he tried to make good on God's promise with his uh, servant woman, Hagar, instead. He had a child with her instead of his wife, Sarah. And not wavering in faith doesn't mean that sin is no longer present. Of course it is. Right? Until we're fully sanctified in heaven, in the presence of God, we will sin. And that means that our faith comes with its fair share of shortfalls. What's amazing, though, is that in spite of these shortfalls, God did not withdraw from Abraham, right? He didn't pull away or cancel the promise or say, Abraham, you messed up too bad. I'm done. I'm not going to hold up my end of the bargain. And for a man who forced his servant woman to have his child, by, by all accounts, Abraham assaulted this woman and said, you're having my child. It's, it's terrible." God didn't withdraw from Abraham. God remained faithful to him in spite of that. That's a pretty big deal, right? And God remains faithful to us while we slip and slide all over the place and while we try to walk that straight and narrow, but sometimes we fall off the edge or we turn around and run back to our sin. God remains faithful through all of that. Through it all, God remained faithful. And delivered on his promises to Abraham. And he will do the same thing as you endure in faith with him. Lesson number three. Abraham gave glory to God with his faith. Let's look at the second half of 20 through 21. It says, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. God was glorified in Abraham's faith. Do you remember what Paul said in chapter twenty-one? Uh, in or sorry, in chapter one, verses twenty-one through twenty-three, he said that for although they—that's just people—knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. People, earlier in chapter 1, knowing God, exchanged his glory for idols, for lesser created things, and God is not glorified in that. But now, here we see that Abraham's enduring faith leads to God receiving his due glory. See, when we rely on and trust in God to deliver on his promises, he is glorified. Well, why does it matter? Why does it matter that God is glorified in our actions? Like, who, who really cares, right? Well, the Westminster Catechism, uh, which is a great resource, it's a series of questions and answers to uh, instill biblical truth. It's, it's a, great, a great thing. Some of you may be familiar with it. Well, it opens with this question. It says, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's, what's our purpose? Why are we here? What's, what's the point of life? And it answers that question by saying this, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, based on 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all. Live your whole life for the glory of God. Why does it matter that God is glorified when we, like Abraham, endure in faith? Well, because our chief end, our primary purpose, the reason that we exist is to bring Glory to God in all that we do. This is maybe one of the biggest areas that the Bible rubs up against American culture right now. right? We hear phrases like, you do you and express yourself and, and make a name for yourself and leave your mark and, and remember the name. right? And things like that pull us in. And, and there's something really appealing about that because we want to be seen and heard and known and remembered. And, and in some ways, that's okay, right? We want to live a life that really matters um, and, and, and leave an impact. But we have a tendency to rob God of his glory when we try and make much of ourselves. In fact, John chapter three, verse 30 says that he must become greater and I must become less. There aren't a whole lot of influencers and talking heads telling us that we should become less right now, are there? But if our purpose is to bring God glory in all that we do, then a major way that we can do that is by enduring in our faith even when our circumstances look shaky and even and especially when it means dying to ourself and elevating and trusting in the promises of the Lord. So give glory to God by your faith in him. Finally, lesson number four, Faith leads to righteousness. Look with me at verses 22 to 25. It says, This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He, that is Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He looked forward to God fulfilling the promises that he made, right, for land, offspring, and a blessing relationship. And because he believed God and he had faith in him, God credited that to him as righteousness. That same righteousness is available to you and me as we look back on the promise that God delivered in the person and work of Jesus. Faith leads to righteousness, right? It's a a wild concept if we step back and think about it for a minute, right? There's no earning, there's no doing, there's no working, there's no checking boxes to get there. It's just faith. It's just coming before God with empty hands, recognizing that we're sinners, that we need God to save us, asking him to do it, and then he does. But we think that can't really be all there is, right? Surely there has to be something else because it doesn't make sense because I know how bad I am. I, I have to do something to atone or pay for all of the terrible things that I've done, all the damage I've caused, all the relationships that I've hurt, all the people that I've wounded, all, all this, I, I got to do something, right? I've fallen short in so many ways. God could never forgive me just because someone else died for me, and then I believe that. that It it doesn't make sense. How could Jesus just die and, and all the good that he did is credited to me? There has to be more than that. Believe it or not, that's the exact message of the gospel. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God in spite of his circumstances looking contrary to God's promises, in spite of an ever extending timeline. He believed God in spite of his own sin and shortcomings. And because of God's grace and kindness, God granted him righteousness. And church, he does the same thing for you and I today. God promised in these verses to credit righteousness for us who believe in him. Who believe in him, who who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification so what do we do with all of that do we do with all these lessons and reminders well Abraham's faith is an amazing example for us right and, and it's easy to be dis- become discouraged and think that we could never live like that isn't it we can look at these things that Abraham did and we can, we can think yeah great for him but there's no way I I could never do that. God, God could never love me like he did Abraham, right? We could never walk out our faith and trust in God's promises like Abraham did. I'm too broken. I'm too sinful. It's too hard in the culture we live in. My family isn't supportive of this, right? On and on and on, we come up with reason after reason. But the thing is, you can be justified just like Abraham. Your faith in Christ Can be credited to you as righteousness, just like Abraham's faith in God was for him. You're not too far gone. You're not too broken. You're not too much of a mess. God loves you. He wants to credit the righteousness of Christ to you if you would just turn to him. So believer and unbeliever alike, you are not too far gone for the Lord. You didn't disappoint him so much that he won't have you back. Jesus died for your sins, and he was raised to life for your justification. You can't sin so badly that his blood doesn't cover it. His blood was enough. His sacrifice was sufficient for the entirety of your sin. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you, and if you place your trust in him, he will credit you with the righteousness of Christ. That's all you have to do. You you place your trust in, in God and you experience this love unlike anything you've ever known where he credits the work of his son on your behalf and when he looks at you he doesn't see the messy sinner that you know you are instead he sees one who has been washed by the blood of his son an adopted son and daughter, one who he loves and who he will walk with for the rest of their life I've shared uh, this story before written by John Bunyan but as we conclude, listen to these words uh, and hear the, the love that the Lord has for you. No wait, we say, cautiously approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. I know, he responds. You know most of it, sure, certainly more than what others see, but there's perversity down inside me that is hidden from everyone. I know it all. Well, the thing is, it's not just my past. It's my present, too. I understand. But I don't know if I can break free of this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help. The burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed toward others. They're against you. Then I am the one most suited to forgive them. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Turn to Jesus and you will never be cast out. Let's pray.